Certainly thankful uh, to be here, thankful that God has blessed us to be here. Um, I know uh, that uh, it is both a time of, of rejoicing and a time of uh, somewhat uh, sorrow and difficulty as we look around and, and, uh, and consider the day and, and knowing that this is the first time that we've been able to gather since uh, Sister Jane's passing. I'd like to say that I, there are things that I know, but I, I think I'll word it this way. There are some things, there's at least one thing I believe to be true. And what I believe to be true is that, uh, that if Sister Jane could say so, she would tell me that the, the best way that we could honor her this morning is to honor the Lord. I think that's what she would tell me. So my intention are, my intentions are, uh, to try to speak grammatically correct first, my intentions are to, to go back and try to remind you of where we were uh, before all of this happened and then kind of pick up where we left off. Not, not to try to pretend that it didn't happen, uh, but one, to bring some level of normalcy back uh, to the church, and two, because I want to finish what we had started because I think it was of the Lord. And, and three, I think that's the best way to honor uh, God is, is, to, is to just serve him and do the best we can. I think the best way we can honor him this morning is to preach and teach the word of God in the best way that God has given us the ability to do so. So that, that's what I want uh, to do uh, this morning. So you can turn in your Bibles, if you like, uh, to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Um, this is going to be an odd starting place for the message that I'm about to deliver. It may seem like one to you, or at least it is to me, because I've never, I've never started from this location uh, on this particular topic or message because I had never seen uh, in that particular section of Scripture what I, what I have seen uh, this week as I studied it. So as you're turning there... I want to give you a little bit of a, a rundown of, of where we were and what we've talked about and, and why we are where we are and then what we're going to talk about, and then I'll tell you what we're talking about. And, and you know, hopefully we'll all remember everything after that. So, so several weeks before we, before we uh, had this COVID outbreak or several weeks even before my family and I made the trip down to, to North Florida along with both Sam and Sister Kathy and Brother Victor and his family, uh, Jake and Hannah and, and all of us. Before we went down uh, that weekend for Brother Todd Nunley's ordination, uh, the three weeks prior to that, I had started preaching through a series that I called, you know, Back to the Basics. And, and we were using uh, a very common acronym that is used throughout Christianity to describe a particular set of doctrines. We, we often say when people ask us what our, what our theological premise is or what, what we believe theologically, we often say we believe in the doctrines of grace. That's what we'll say to people. Now, a lot of people say they believe in grace, but by the time they get through explaining it, there's no grace left in it. So, so there's an acronym that's often used to describe what we hold to, and it's called the TULIP acronym, right? The T-U-L-I-P. And we'd started working our way through that acronym where the T stands for total depravity, uh, 
where the U stands for unconditional election and the L stands for limited atonement. And that's where we, that's where we finished. We, we got through the first three of those basic fundamental doctrines. Total depravity being the fact that, that when Adam fell in the garden, that his fall was transmitted to all mankind that was born of the seed of a man. Right? And that, that depravity was complete, that it was, that, that he was wholly and completely depraved, affected from head to toe. The extent of that effect uh, reached all humanity. The severity of that effect was complete throughout his being. Right? We talk about the fact that that put human beings in a very precarious position that as a result of the fall of Adam, that every single person in the world, every single person that would descend from a man was for all intents and purposes on a path, a destiny toward hell. And there was nothing that they could do about it. It was done. It was finished. We were there. We were represented in Adam as our federal head but we were also there, in a sense, in his loins when he committed that sin. And not only are we sinners by nature, having been born of the seed of Adam, we are sinners by practice. In other words, we prove our sin by what we do. And we talked about the fact that there needs to be a solution to this problem. We've created a problem by describing this doctrine, have we not? There's a serious problem. Not one person in the entirety of humanity is capable of being saved. So we've got to do something, right? And that's what the Bible is here for, is to tell us what God did. It's the story of what God did to overcome our depravity. It's essentially what it is. So we went to the, to the second letter in that, in that acronym of TULIP, and we said, okay, unconditional election. If, if, if everything is out of the hands of men, then it must fall into the hands of God. And we showed via the word of God that God had foreseen this problem. And that in eternity past that he had entered into a covenant with himself as the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost, entered into a covenant with himself, right, to save God's people. So God chose a definite number, one that we don't know what it is, and we couldn't count it if we tried, and he placed those into the care of his son. We call that unconditional election. We made the point that it is unconditional. He did not look down through time and see who was going to be nicey-nice and pick them. And the reason we were able to say that is because we were able to prove via the Word of God that there were nobody, or there was nobody that would be nicey-nice. Right? There just wasn't anybody that fit that description. They have all gone astray. They, they, they've all together become unrighteous, essentially. Then we talk about the fact that if God had chosen a people before the world was to save, then it makes perfect logical sense to believe that when Jesus went to the cross, that he went to the cross to save those whom God chose. We call that the limited atonement. We didn't mean limited in power, limited in ability. 
We didn't mean limited. We meant limited in the sense that it wasn't applied to the entire human race. That the effect of that atonement on the cross by Jesus Christ was to be applied to his people. We, we pointed out the fact that the angel actually told Joseph, fear not to take into thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. We also pointed out that Jesus actually said himself that he came down from heaven not to do his own will, but the will of his Father, which had sent him. And his Father's will was, was this, of all that he had given him, he would lose nothing, but raise it up again at the last day. So if God had given Jesus the entire human race and he didn't raise up every single one of them to life at the last day, then Jesus fails. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God gave Jesus a very specific people. And we call that the limited atonement. So today we're down to the I in that TULIP acronym. So what we're going to talk about is irresistible Grace, irresistible grace. Interesting. So here's what our our articles of faith at Dallas have to say. I pulled them up on my phone a few minutes ago. It's not real, real descriptive, but it, it does make a, a statement about this. It is article number eight in our articles of faith. It says, we believe all God's elect shall be born again by the Holy Spirit, and shall always be always be God's children. Now, there's several different doctrines wrapped up in that, but you'll find in there a little bit of the statement of this concept of irresistible grace. And that that statement is is that we believe that all of God's elect shall be born again. Shall be. This doctrine is one of the doctrines that separates primitive Baptists in, in particular from many other systems of theology and faith. If people ask you, well, what's the difference between a primitive Baptist and everybody else? We tend to jump to the fact that we don't have pianos, we don't have Sunday schools. The reality is that the bigger differences are theological. The more important differences are theological. Do you hear what I said? the more important differences are theological. We, we all need to agree on that. The truth is important, right? Amen? Okay. So, so we, need to, we need to understand that there are some theological differences. We're not all just teaching the same thing with different words. There, there are specific theological differences. For the, for, for the instance, there's a reason we call it irresistible grace. A lot of people believe that God at some point in your life will call you to life and it's up to you to make a choice on whether to accept that call or not. You can resist. You can tell by the name of our theological point here that we don't believe that, right? We don't believe that's possible. So let's talk a little bit about this irresistible grace. First of all, let's make sure we understand that it's made up of two components. There is a call to life. And then there's a response to that call. Make sense? If I'm holding a party and I send out invitations and I call people to come to the party, 
Let's say I send out 200 invitations to call people to come to the party. Will 200 people show up? Probably not. Why? Because I'll get different responses. Some people will come. Some people won't. See, there's a difference between the call and the response, at least technically speaking. Let's consider for a moment what we're talking about here when we talk about irresistible grace. If God sends out a call to this heavenly party and he sends out a call for 200, he sends out 200 invitations, will 200 people show up? Yes. Because his call is what? Irresistible. Exactly. So there is a call and a response. In this case, the call is a spiritual call, and that's going to become important. We're going to see that in just a few minutes when we read Romans chapter 1. And these few verses we're actually going to read in Romans chapter 1 that he, he lays out three different calls in the very beginning of that book. I've never noticed this before uh, until this week, so I just wanted to share it with you. Y'all have probably already seen it. You're going to go, man, our preacher is just, you know, he's so slow. We, I can't believe he didn't catch up with us a long time ago. But at least I'm sharing with you how, how ignorant I am. And, uh, and, and, you know, it is what I, it is what I learned this week. So there is a call under consideration here. And the call that we're talking about in this particular te- context of irresistible grace is a spiritual call that comes, and we're going to see this a little bit later, that comes directly from Jesus Christ, if you will, through the Holy Spirit to the heart of a child of God. In other words, there's no mediator in between. That's important. There's no mediator in between. It is directly from God to the heart of a child of grace. That's the call we're talking about. The response. Anybody got an idea of what the response that we're talking about here is? It was in our article of faith. We said that they all shall be what? Born again. Changed. You can come up with a whole different bunch of terms in here. The Bible uses different ones. It uses born again. It uses quickened. It uses changed. All of those are used to describe this spiritual, effectual change. The word effectual is going to become important to us in a little bit. But it's this, it's this spiritual and effectual change. What is the change? It is a change from life unto death. That's the word quickened comes into play a lot of times. I mean, death into life. Thank you. Sorry, got them backwards. From life unto death, right? That's what Adam did, didn't it? Sorry, sorry. From death unto life. See, y'all need to keep me straight. That was just a test. <laughs> Not really. I would like to go br- blame COVID brain, but I haven't had it. So <laughs> I've heard that phrase a lot lately from our folks. But, but from death unto life, and that's why we call it quicken. That's why the Bible uses the phrase, the term quicken. So we're going to talk about this in a minute. So, so essentially we're about to read this particular scripture we're going to read. And we're going to see that there are three calls that are detailed in Romans chapter 1. So let's go to Romans chapter 1. Let's start reading in verse 1. It says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called, listen to that, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. So verse 1, we have a call. What is that call? Anybody got an idea? What's the, what's the nature of that call? Call to the ministry. He said, I was called to be an apostle. We're a, we're a church that firmly believes that when it comes to the ministry, men don't just volunteer. 
You don't just wake up one day and say, you know what, I've done uh, a lot of studying about my career choices, and, and I think I just want to grow up to be a preacher. It's not the way it works. It's not about it being a, an appropriate fit for a personality or the right way to, to, to make a living. Right? I, had a, I had a man one time that came up in the ministry under me, and his parents were extremely, extremely strongly Southern Baptists. They were not primitives at all. And, and they weren't real, real, real happy that he had, he had converted to the primitive faith to start with. Um, they got over it over time, but, but they, they didn't really understand that he was leaving their faith. I mean, that's the way it works sometimes with families, right? You, you leave the faith of your family and it, it kind of confuses them. They don't understand. And then, then it came to the point where he, he felt that he was called to the ministry and he, you know, we, we exercised a little bit. Before we got too far into it, he said, I really have to go tell my mom and dad. Because this is, it's bad enough that I left and joined. Now I've got to go tell him I'm going to preach for these people. Right? So he went home for a weekend. He come back. I said, so how'd it go? And he says, well, I, said, I sat down in the living room and I told him, I said, you know, you know, Dan, I, I, I really feel like I've been called to the ministry. I'm going to start preaching for these folks. And, and I said, so what did your dad say? He said, my dad looked at me and said, well, as long as you can make a living at it. <laughs> oh boy, you've joined the wrong people. <laughs> it's not the way it works amongst primitive Baptists in most places, right? It's not the way it works. But this is a call to the ministry. Notice what he says. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated into the gospel of God. So there is a call, we'll call it, to the ministry. Somebody might ask, well, what's that feel like? How do you know you've been called to the ministry? Boy, I've been asked that so many times by young people that feel like they've been called. I don't know how to answer it. I, I really can't answer that question. I don't know. I, I can't go back to a day where I can tell you that God spoke to me through a burning bush and said, Marty, you're going to be a preacher. I just can tell you that the, a burden started. And I just couldn't get over it. I tried. I tried a lot of ways. Uh, y'all have heard the story that I tried to join the Navy. I mean, anybody who was raised by a preacher should know better than to try to get on a boat to get away from God. I'm just glad he didn't let me get on the boat, right? He stopped me before I got to that point. I, I just, I tried to, I tried to appease God by joining the church thinking that would lift the burden. And it did for a while, it seemed like. I tried to, I tried to appease God by saying, well, I, I, don't, I don't really, I don't want to preach, but I'll study your word. And I, I, I remember robbing my father's small library of, of religious books he had. He had a couple of debates, a Hassel's history, a couple other odds and ends, and a Bible. And I used to sit in my bedroom floor with them spread out around me, and I would sit and read and study different topics. Little did I know God was preparing me for the ministry. But I thought I was appeasing him, and he would leave me alone if I studied hard enough. So I don't really know how to tell you what that feels like, but, there, but it does exist. It is real. We're not trying to educate people into the ministry. We're trying to educate those that have been called into the ministry. We need men that are called. And as a church, we need to be praying that God will continue to send laborers into the field. We are short on laborers today when it comes to the ministry, and we need more of them. He says, which, speaking of God, he says, which he had promised uh, or speaking of the apostles, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, 
concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God, one of my favorite verses right here as far as the resurrection goes, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. How was he declared to be the Son of God? By the resurrection from the dead. You want proof that Jesus was the Son of God? Just go look at the resurrection story. That's what Paul's saying. Then he says in verse 5, he says, By whom, Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Listen to this. Among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. Here's another calling. So here was one. We have another form of a call. This call, it says, is of Jesus Christ. What do you, what do you think the nature of this call is? What, what do you think this is? It's a spiritual call. I think it's the one we're getting ready to talk about. I think it's the effectual call. This is, this is a call from Jesus to the individual. And notice what he says about it. He says, listen. He says, by whom we have received the grace and apostleship for our obedience and faith and all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. So when Paul speaks to his audience, the Roman church, the church at Rome, he says, you are the called of Christ. Does he mean that the people in that church are the only ones called? No. But he's saying, that you are that called of Jesus Christ. So to me, this is a spiritual call. And we're going to start using this term in a minute. It is an effectual call. You might know what effectual means. It means it works. It means it accomplishes what it's meant to accomplish. Is the call to the ministry an effectual call? No. It's not. I know men who have been called in the ministry that I've heard preach that I know were blessed of the Lord to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I've seen them leave. Either by their own choice or due to their own immorality. It wasn't effectual. I've seen men resist it. Now, I'm not saying they can do it without consequence, but I've seen it happen. That call is not effectual. This one is. Notice what it says in the next verse. In verse 7, it says, To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's a third one. There's a third call that's mentioned here. And it's a call to be saints. Has anybody got any idea what the nature of that call is? It's a call to obedience. How does it normally come? Through the gospel. Through the preaching of the word. Through the preaching of the word. It's important that we understand that these three calls exist. 
Because as you go through the Word of God, you're going to see the word call on multiple occasions. And you need to ask yourself, which one of these three are we talking about? And oftentimes, you're going to have to use context to figure it out. And if you think it means the same thing every time, you're going to be more confused than a termite in a wooden yoga. It's not going to make sense. Okay? So let me ask you this. Is the gospel call effectual? It has an effect. It has an effect on the child of grace. But it doesn't always have the effect we desire. What's the effect that we desire? We, we desire for it to reach the heart of that person and for them to stand up and say, Yes, Lord, you are my king, you are my Lord, and I want to follow you, and I'm going to join your church, and I'm going to be the best me I can be. That's what we want. The gospel always finds a lodging place, though, in the heart of a child of grace because there is a place there for it to lodge. Because, you see, regeneration has an impact. When a child of grace is born again, it's not like nothing happens. There's some people who believe that. There's some people who believe that a person could be born again and nothing happens to them. That's not the case. Don't fall into that trap on one extreme. There are other people who believe once a person is born again, they have the potential to become super saints, almost sinless. That's the other extreme. Don't fall into that trap either. They actually have names. They're called the Hololog Doctrine and the Whole Man Doctrine. Don't fall into either one. Know that when a person is born of the Spirit of God, there's something miraculous, something amazing, something powerful. The presence of God Himself has taken up residence inside, residence inside of them. They are indelibly and, and, and eternally changed. The, their motivations have changed. There is something in their heart that wants to follow God, and it's going to have an impact on their life. You may not notice it. I may not notice it. But it will have an impact. There will be fruit of that regenerative power. And that's what we're going to talk about the rest of the day. We've got about 30 minutes. So we're going to talk about the effectual call. First of all, let's establish the fact that there is such a thing as a gospel call. It's not just in this one scripture. I want to read you a couple of places where the Bible talks about the gospel call just so you can you can get the get the uh, the concept in your head. Let's go to the book of Galatians first of all. Let's go to Galatians chapter 1. We've got a church here in Galatians that is struggling. So I'm going to erase some of this so that we can talk about this call. So we're going to break this down. We're going to eliminate from our conversation for the moment the idea of the call to the ministry, and we're going to narrow this down to two calls that we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about the gospel call first because I want to establish that it's real and that it's unique and it's different than the effectual call. Remember, there is a call and a response, and we're going to tie that call and response together in a few moments, particularly when it comes to the spiritual call. Let's go to Galatians chapter 1 for a second. Let's go down to about oh, uh, verse 6. The Apostle Paul says to the church at Galatia, he says, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him 
that called you under the grace of Christ unto another gospel or another truth. I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you to this gospel to another one. This is a problem. The Apostle Paul is establishing the fact that there is a problem. There is such a thing as truth. There is such a thing as right and wrong when it comes to the Word of God. And it's important that we, we remain in the truth of God's Word. And he's looking at the church at Galatia, and he's saying, look, I came here, I preached the gospel. Other people came here, we preached the truth. You heard it, you received it, we went away. And man, within a matter of a year or two, you've already given up what we preached to you. You've allowed somebody to call you to another gospel. There is a gospel call. Let's look at another scripture, if you would, for a second. Let's go over to 2 Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians, we're going to jump down to chapter 2. And in verse 13 it says, But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Now, right there is some, some deep, deep traffic to get into. You know, first of all, he tells us that I know you've been chosen. And he says you were chosen uh, to salvation. And how does that how were you chosen to that salvation? Through sanctification, through being set apart, and he also says through the belief of the truth. So there, there, is a, there is a biblical mandate that says that God chose us to believe. doesn't mean we all will, at least not outwardly, but we were chosen to believe. It's what we're supposed to do. He chose us to believe. Okay. But listen to what he says in the next verse. He says, whereunto that belief? Whereunto? He called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he says we are called by the gospel. We're called by it. There is such a thing as a gospel call. And the gospel call is different than the effectual call. And it's different because it's not effectual. There are two fishing stories. I like fishing stories, by the way, because I like fish. Got to go for the first time this year the other day. Fish for hours and hours and hours in the heat of the sun. Nothing. I threw everything I knew. I tried every tactic I knew as a, as a, as a person that studied bass behavior. I, I thought, man, that water is so hot and warm. Those fish are just laying down there. They're, they're afraid to move. They, they, ugh, miserable. Just like we are when it gets hot outside. We find a shady spot and we go, I'm done. So I thought, man, I need to slow down my presentation. So I, I went to soft plastics and weighted things that I could drop down in front of a fish and sit there and just shake it, try to get them to 
you know, strike that thing, even if it wasn't out of hunger, out of anger. You know, we're just thinking, get out of my face, right? Nothing. Hours of this sitting there. Started to get a little dusky dark, and all of a sudden a thunder rattled, and I was on the other side of this small lake, and I decided, well, maybe I need to head back to the ramp. It's going to rain. I started heading back to the ramp, and I looked at, while I'm pedaling along on my little kayak, I pulled up my phone, looked at the radar, and went, nah, it's, that rain's far off. It's not coming here. So I decided to steer back down this bank that it was getting late anyway. I was going to have to go in soon. I decided to steer back down this bank that that I'd already fished through a couple times, but I was too frustrated to sit there and fish something slow. I wanted something I could just throw and reel back, you know. So I did. And just as I turned the corner up this bank and on the first point of grass, I threw that, that spinnerbait across there and reeled it in and bam, fish. Oh, wow. Must have just been a random occurrence. He's just cruising. They're, they're just spread out. They're just cruising the face of this grass. Three casts later, bam, second fish. Oh, man, I wish I could stay here a while, but it's getting dark. So I had to leave. I like fishing stories. I enjoy fishing. There's two fishing stories in the New Testament that I find just intriguing. The first one happens before Jesus dies. And he comes to Peter, who's on a boat, who's fishing, and the other, some of the others are with him. And he says, how's it going? And they said, terrible. We fished all night, and we've caught nothing. Now, they were net fishing, not line fishing like I do. I mean, to be throwing nets all night long and not get anything, that pretty much tells me there ain't no fish in the area, right? Well, Jesus says, cast the net on the other side. They toss that net over the other side, and guess what? They pull that thing up. It is so full. That net is so full that the Bible says that the net broke. You can see them now trying to scramble and get that net into that, into that boat as fish are spilling out of that net back into the water. I mean, this is your livelihood, right? This is food for your table and it's spilling back. They're just panicking. Right? That was one story. The second one happens after Jesus' resurrection. And Jesus finds Peter fishing again. This is Peter. How's it going? You'd think Peter would have figured it out at this point, but he doesn't get it yet. He doesn't even know who this is. Peter says, we fished all night. We ain't caught a thing. Jesus says, well, why don't you drop the net on the other side? You'd think Peter would have figured it out then, wouldn't you? But he didn't. He drops the net on the other side, and it says that when he pulled it in, this time, guess what? It says the net didn't break. But it was so full that some of the other ships had to come and help. And it's at that moment that Peter goes, that's my Lord. And he jumps off the ship and swims to shore. The Bible actually tells us exactly how many fish were in that net. So preacher, what does that number mean? Let me tell you, I have no idea. I really don't. But I do find the contrast between these two stories interesting. The one before Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection has a net that breaks and fish that escape. And the one that comes after his resurrection 
has a net that holds and every last fish is gathered in. And I can't help but think about the difference between the gospel call as Jesus was in the midst of his gospel ministry. The gospel call, which is not perfect in gathering versus the the resurrected Savior and his effectual call that never fails. I can't help but think about that difference. I think those two stories in some ways are metaphors for those two ideas. Maybe I'm over-spiritualizing, over stretching it too far. I'm not sure, but I can't think of another reason for them to be so similar and yet so different. So there is a gospel call. We notice it here in this particular case in 2 uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 where he says, Therefore, brethren, stand fast. And uh, uh, Sorry. Whereunto you are called, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice that phrase, the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about other scriptures that talk about something similar. And one is 2 Timothy 2.10, where it says, I, Paul, he says, I therefore endure all things for the elect's sake that they might obtain this salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, with eternal glory. In other words, there was something that the Apostle Paul wanted these people to have, and he was willing to suffer for them to have it, along with the eternal salvation that they already had. He wasn't trying to obtain eternity for them. He was trying to obtain something else, and he called it this glory which is in Christ Jesus. With, or this salvation which is in Christ Jesus, with eternal glory. Here in 2 Thessalonians, it calls it the glory. Either way. So this gospel call is intended to call you out of the world to repentance and to faith in Jesus Christ that you might have something here in this life in addition to what Jesus has already bought for you in eternity to come. And that's the gospel call. That's what it's about. People say, well, if you don't believe that the gospel saves people for heaven, why are you preaching it? I just explained why we're preaching it. I'm preaching it for the same reason that Paul does, that they might obtain this salvation, which is in Christ Jesus. What salvation is that? A peace and comfort of knowing that Jesus has died for their sins. This salvation, which is in Christ Jesus, along with eternal glory. So that's the purpose and the reason for the gospel call. But it is different than this second one we're going to talk about. There is a second call that I call the effectual call, and I'm not the only one. This is a fairly well-known theological term. The effectual call. The difference is that the gospel call comes from the mouth of one sinner to the heart of another. That's by definition how the gospel is mostly delivered. From the mouth of one sinner to the heart of another. Now trust me, God doesn't need my sinful mouth to do that. He can can make a donkey speak if he needs to. But in the general sense and tenor of Scripture, the gospel is when one sinner tells another about Jesus. The effectual call is different. It is when God himself 
either in the person of God the Father, God the Son, or God the Holy Ghost, however you want to word it, speaks to the heart of a sinner directly and changes them from death unto life. Got it right that time. The gospel doesn't do that. The gospel changes them from darkness to light. The effectual call changes them from death to life. You can be alive and be in the dark. That's where the gospel comes in handy. Okay? So let's talk about the effectual call. Let's go back to the book of Romans, but let's jump over to chapter 8 for just a minute. Uh, a chapter that you probably haven't read very many times in your life as a primitive Baptist, but chapter 8, even though I know you're probably not familiar with it, let's jump there. Chapter 8, verse 29, where it says, For whom he, the he under consideration here is God. We know that because verse 28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. God is the his under consideration there. It says, For whom he... Still talking about God, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, still talking about God, them he also called. And whom he called, he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. So you notice there in the middle of that particular text is this statement that he called. There is a calling. This calling that we're talking about under consideration right here has a very particular nature to it. Did you notice who is doing the calling? God. So which call is this? Is this the gospel call or the effectual call? It's the effectual call. It's a spiritual call from the mouth of God himself. It's the effectual call. So let's let's just throw Romans uh, Romans 8, 29 through 30 under that particular context. It's an effectual call. The caller is God. The callee is you. Okay? So let's, let's think about that a little bit. Uh, let, let's, while, you're, while you're holding on to that, let's go over to the Gospel of John. We're going to spend a little bit of time in the Gospel of John uh, before we get done. Uh, John chapter 5. John chapter 5. These are some of my favorite verses around the concept of the effectual call and how it works, the nature of it. So we're going to talk about the nature of this call. Uh, We're going to talk about the outcome of this call. Because right now we're talking about the call, right? We already said that irresistible grace, maybe we ought to put it up here over top of it so we don't lose it. Irresistible grace is composed of two components, right? A call and a response. We haven't talked about the response yet, have we? We've talked only about the call. And we're trying to establish the fact that this call is a call from God. Right? That's what we're doing right now. This is an effectual call. This is a spiritual call. God is speaking, either through through the person of the Father, or the Son, or the Holy Ghost. really doesn't matter. It's God that's speaking. Sometimes we like to get too, too cute and divide everything up into Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The reality is, if you look through Scripture and you talk about these three persons of the Trinity, you'll find that the Bible attributes creation to God the Father, it attributes creation to God the Son, it attributes creation to God the Holy Ghost. That's how we know that they're all the same. Essence, yet three persons. They're the same substance, same in essence and substance, but yet they are three persons, three different personalities. 
It's not one God manifest in three modes. That's a, that's a heresy. It's not one God who puts on three different masks. It's not one God who takes on three different roles. It is one God, three persons. Each operating independently, yet of the same essence. Each able to appear independently, yet of the same substance. We see that appearance on Jesus' uh, uh, baptism when Jesus, the Son, is standing there. The Holy Ghost as a dove descends and lights upon his shoulder, and God the Father speaks out of heaven and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. All three persons of the Trinitarian God are present and accounted for and acting independently in that moment. And yet, they are one God. The original Hebrew word, by the way, for God in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, is actually plural. Isn't that weird? The only way we could translate it into English was to translate it in the singular. But yet, the original Hebrew is a plural word, Elohim. Strange. Isn't it? And then God goes on to say, let us make man in our own image in Genesis, right? Who's the us? There was nobody else around. Was he talking to the, to the cattle? I don't think so. It's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. They were all present and accounted for. And they could have conversations and yet act as one. Strange, strange, strange understanding. We try to get into some, such detail sometimes. What's it matter as long as we understand that it is God that is doing the calling here? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. Sometimes it's tri- attributed to the Holy Ghost. Sometimes it's attributed to Jesus. doesn't matter. So in this case, we're going to read right here. It's going to attribute it to Jesus himself. So we go to John chapter 5, the gospel of John chapter 5. We're going to drop down to verse 25, uh, and we're going to see where it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. And you might say, well, morning, that's talking about the resurrection at the end of time. No, it's not. Because a little bit later in that same chapter, he says, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. That's talking about the resurrection of time. So this is something he's talking about that is going on right now. He says the hour is coming and will be going on later. The hour is coming and now is. It's both coming and happening. So what was both coming and happening at that time? Regeneration. People were being born again. God was calling people to life. So we have the nature of the call. The first thing we're going to talk about is the nature of this effectual call. And the nature of it is, let's just keep it simple. Let's spell it right first. Keep it simple. It is spiritual. And when I say it is spiritual in this context, I mean something different than just it's spiritual. I mean, the gospel spiritual, if it's truly preached as it ought to be, and God intervenes between the mouth of the man and the heart of the hearer, then it's certainly a spiritual message. But it didn't come from a spirit. It came from me. Now, I'm not a spiritual person in that sense. When I say it's spiritual, I mean it has a spiritual origin, a, an origin from a spirit, God himself, who is a spirit and must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. It is coming from God. In that sense, it is a spiritual message. It's what we call the living word. 
When I preach, it's called the, the spoken word. When you read it in the Bible, it's called the, the written word. When Jesus comes and speaks, it's called the living word. Matter of fact, as we're told that when he comes riding on that white horse in the book of the Revelation, all that beautiful pictures and metaphor, we find that it says that it's written upon him is the word of God. He is called the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. Right? Jesus is the word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So it's spiritual. Comes from a spiritual source. So it is, is it effectual? We haven't established that yet, have we? But we're about to. Verily, verily, the hour is coming and now is when the dead, listen closely, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. Now listen. And they that hear shall live. Does that verse establish that this is an effectual call? No. It does not. It establishes that the call that we're talking about comes from Jesus. And it establishes that everyone who hears it will live. But one could argue, what about those that don't hear? How do you deal with that, preacher? How do we prove that this call is effectual? How do we prove that the call generates a necessary and essential response? Well, let's look at another verse of Scripture. Let's stay in the same book. Let's go to John chapter 10. How about that? He says, they that hear, right, shall live. Well, maybe we ought to go find a verse that talks about God's people hearing. I mean, that would help us out. So that's what I did. I'm I'm kind of playing a little bit there. But let's go over to John chapter 10 for a second. Let's go to John chapter 10. Let's look at verse 27, particularly 27 through 30. These are not unfamiliar to you, but listen to what Jesus says. Jesus is speaking. He says this. He says, my sheep. Does anybody know who his sheep are? We're talking about the elect of God, are we not? I mean, clearly. This is his sheep. My people. My sheep. Those that God hath given me. Listen, he says, what does he say? He says, my sheep hear my voice. Now go back to John 5.25 in your head for a minute and remember what it said. Verily, verily, the hour is coming now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God And they that hear shall live. So who hears him? His sheep. Are there any exceptions to that? Absolutely not. We're not given any exceptions at all. My sheep hear my voice. Listen to what he says about that. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. If you didn't understand that the sheep were the elect of God, there it is. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. He says, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. There's one of the most basic, fundamental, Trinitarian doctrinal statements in the entire Word of God. That Jesus the Son and God the Father are In identity, the same. In essence, they are one. They may have different ministries and different personalities, but they are one. And if you don't understand that, 
The Jews certainly did because do you know what happened after this? They took up stones to stone him. And you know why they took up stones to stone him? Because he made himself out to be God. That's what they said. They understood. They understood exactly what he was implying. But here's the point for us. What's the nature of this call? First of all, it is, it is spiritual. Second of all, it is effectual. And what is the effect that it's having? Verily, verily, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. That's the effect it's having. So can someone refuse this call? No. Not according to the Word of God. Let's look at another particular example that I, I find fascinating. Let's go over to the book of Ephesians for a minute. Ephesians chapter 2. If I can get there, Ephesians chapter 2. Notice it says in Ephesians chapter 2, and you, verse 1, and you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sins. You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. As a matter of fact, he goes on and says, Where, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So when Brother Marty the preacher says that we were all, without the intervention of God, destined into the same direction as wrath that, that everyone was, hell itself, the lake of fire, I'm not just saying that. God said it. We were all children of wrath. By nature, we were all children of wrath. There was, there was nothing that's good. But notice he says, and you hath he quickened. The word quickened means to be made alive. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. When did he do that? That verse doesn't establish when he did that. All that verse says is that we were once dead and now we're alive. All kinds of things could have happened in between, right? Did they? No. How do you know that, Brother Mark? Because I kept reading. I kept reading because it goes on and says, But God, who is rich in mercy for his everlasting love, wherewith he loved us, even, listen to this, even when... Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace, ye are saved. So when did he quicken us together? While we were still dead. It's one thing to say, and you hath he quickened who were dead, because all kinds of things could have happened in between. It's another thing to say, he quickened you while you were dead. In other words, we didn't do anything to deserve it. We were still dead in our sins. We hadn't, we hadn't changed in the least. We were dead sinners and he quickened us together. So the nature of this particular call is that it is spiritual. The impact of this call is that it's effectual. In other words, where there is a call of this type, there is always a response. And that response is always the same that person is translated from death to life. Always the same. That's why you'll see a lot of people when they talk about things like regeneration and the effectual call and irresistible grace, they lump them all together and say they're all the same thing and they don't make a distinction between the call and the response. 
The reason they don't make a distinction between the call and response is they're so uniquely tied that where there is a call, there's always a response. And I don't really have a problem with looking at it that way if people want to. I'm, this is the engineer in me. I'm breaking it down. I want to see the parts. God calls, we respond. And the response is always the same. God calls, we respond. God calls, we're alive. Every time. Every time God calls one of His children in this world that is, that is dead in sin, they are immediately and instantaneously and at that moment made alive in Christ. And it will have an impact on their heart. It will change them. They will feel guilty when they sin. They will likely feel the weight of the guilt of their past sin. That's usually the first thing that happens. And what do they need at that moment? At that moment, they need something else. They need this gospel call to come and declare to them why and how, how wonderful it is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins so that they don't have to feel guilty. So that they can have peace. So that they can have peace. This is why we call it irresistible grace. We believe this call is an act of grace on the part of God. We did not deserve it. We didn't even ask for it. We didn't do anything to earn it. God graciously comes and says, I'm not only going to save you eternally, I'm going to tell you about it in this life. I'm going to call you. And I'm going to give you spiritual life now. We call it grace because it's something we don't deserve. We call it irresistible because every time he calls, his children answer. My sheep hear my voice. Remember that? My sheep hear my voice. And remember this. Verily, verily, the hour is coming now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. And they that hear, who? My sheep, shall live. So God's going to call his sheep. His sheep are going to hear, and they that hear shall live. Put them all together, you end up with only one conclusion. It is irresistible grace. And that gets us through the tulip doctrine, as they call it, down to there. Next week, if God will allow us and grant us the grace to continue to be able to meet together, and I I ask you through the week to pray that God continues to allow us to meet because we shouldn't take that for granted here anymore. We should understand the, the, the fragile nature of our ability to meet. I never thought, in all my years in the ministry, I never thought this would be the reason that we would be drawn to the point that we would become, that we would need to remember how fragile our ability to meet. I, I thought for sure it would be persecution that would take us to the point that we would have to gather up in private places. I never thought we would be where we are. But I am thankful for one thing that's come out of it, and it is a greater appreciation on my part for being able to meet with God's people. 